Welcome back, everyone. It's been a beautiful, snowy winter. My friends tease me because I prayed for rain and snow. I have been praying for years for this drought to end. And so every day it snows or rains, I'm like, thank you, Jesus. The land needs it. We need it. And I'm praying that it... Um, it's something that doesn't just happen in the natural, but it's something that happens in our land, in the spiritual, in our hearts, that there's just like this flood of refreshing rains and waters. Um, Aaron's home church in California, and there's more coming, you all, because they had to cancel church today because they can't even get in their parking lot. So that's how much snow is coming. Last week when we were in Mexico, they don't have any HVAC. We were freezing. The only place Meg and I could get warm was in bed with lots of blankets on top of us. So Lord bless Tecate and Tijuana where they don't have as much HVAC. Lord, protect them there. But um, I wanted to give a praise report for Care Portal. Um, we wanted to raise money for a father and two daughters who were in need. We raised $450 just like that. People online who um, don't normally attend here gave. We're just so thankful that as a church we can, um, and as a people, we can give to people in need. And so the youth group is going to go shopping for that this week. And we're just so blessed that we get to support that family. So um, they're right here in Sandy. Lord, bless the people right here in Sandy who need you. We pray that they would be found, that they would be provided for in Jesus' name. That has a lot to do with what I want to speak about today. I want to speak about humbly going after the one. Now, we sometimes, you'll sometimes hear me use this phrase, going after the one. Where does that come from? Why do I say that? Does it sound like I'm hunting people down like an MLM marketer? No, 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 no. <laughs> going after the one comes from a passage. It comes from Jesus's heart. And it's my heart. I don't want anyone to be lost. I don't want anyone to not know the good news of Jesus. So it comes from Luke 15. And I'm not going to spend a lot of time on it, but I want to give us all a quick review in case you're like, what is this going after the one? Jesus tells three stories, a story about a lost sheep that a shepherd goes to find, goes after the one and brings the sheep back to the 99. Another one, and the next one is about a woman who loses a precious coin. She loses it in the dark. And so what does she do? She lights a lamp and she searches high and low until she finds that coin. And then the third one is called the lost son, also known as the prodigal son. And um, this one, the son has left home. The son has rejected the home. And so as soon as the son turns from the direction that he's going and he turns back, the father comes running and embraces him and grabs him. And he ends up at home. So the lost sheep represents being lost from the foolishness of sin. The lost coin is about the waste or accidental loss. Sometimes we're just negligent. We just miss things and we lose something precious. And then the lost son is a deliberate I mean, that son, he, the lure of the world, the promises of the world, the vanity of the world that Stanley mentioned earlier, allured him. And he's like, I'm rejecting what I know and I'm going after that. And he ends up in a pit with pigs eating. Just He just ends up partying and in trouble and in a pit. <laughs> but he comes back, he repents, he changes from that way and comes back. In each story, what is lost is found. The lost sheep is found and all of heaven rejoices. The lost coin is found and all the neighbors and her friends rejoice. And the lost son is found and the house, the home rejoices. When things that are lost are found, there's joy. I am asking God, I hunger and thirst for lost things to be found in this place and for there to be such a joy that we start singing how great is our God and we just can't help but dance and celebrate and high five and just, just there's just gonna be joy in this house when lost coins, lost sheep and lost children are found. Jesus tells us these stories because he wants us to go after the one with him. 
He's invited us into that work with him. So my talk today is going to be split up into three parts. The first part, I want to talk about humility. The second part, I'm going to tell a story about David going after the one. And in the third part, I've asked three people to share brief stories about how God helped them invite the one, go after the one. So humility. There's a lot of talk about um, the Asbury revival and about the Jesus Revolution movie, which I have not seen yet. I plan to see it soon. But I don't need to see the movie because my parents were the hippies sitting on the floor, feeling lost, needing Jesus, reading the Time magazine and going, what is happening? Checking it out, going to a church, smelly and messy, not so much them, right? But like there were whole communes of people in Alaska who didn't bathe who just imagine if we just had hordes of people coming in here who smelled and were high and were I don't know tweaking whatever we want to call it showing up here because today we have drugs and stuff so they had it then too right but just it was just a messy revival and my parents were part of it so I grew up on stories of the Jesus revolution and it's just They just, there's this wistfulness for this hunger and thirst that all these young people had in this relief of finding Jesus and Jesus restoring them and helping them just, you know, be restored and healed. Heal us, O Lord, and we will be healed. And then there's this outpouring in Kentucky and there's news about little, you know, outpourings of the Holy Spirit in different spots and our hearts just all kind of leap because we're like, oh, do it, do it, Lord, do it in us. Um, This thing in Asbury, I don't know much about it. I don't know anything about it. I just know the sound of it gets me happy (laughs) because it's young people under the age of 25. Guys, I am weeping for Jordan High School still and weeping for our young people. The depression and the suicide and I just want them to not be lost. And there's a hunger and a thirst for something real, something humble, something simple in our people under the age of 25. So I asked our Gen Z All our university students are on spring break. Elijah leaves tomorrow. The rest are already gone. But, oh, Ben. Sorry, Ben. He's behind the pillar. We love you, Ben. You're included. You're here. (laughs) Yes, we love you. We love you. And we all love all of you who are on vacation. And just different things. But anyway, it's humility. I reached out to our junior hires and some of our young people, some of our high school students and one of our college students. I said, can you um, describe humility to me just a minute? The other thing that is happening is there's repentance. These young people are repenting. There's repentance, there's humility, and there's hunger. So I asked our own young people to describe what a humble person looks like. I think I'm going to do this every time I preach when I need a definition. It might be better than the Greek and the Hebrew. So the first one, Caleb Rudd, he says, a humble person, they don't boast about what they've done. The next one, Danny Orr, someone who thinks they're the same as everyone else, no matter who they are. McKinley Dean, a humble person is someone who admits to what they have done wrong with a lot of humility. Mariah Francis, someone who is confident, but always aware that they are not better or more important than anyone else. And Jeremiah Jordan, they would typically be considerate and magnanimous. (laughs) And if you don't know, if you need to look up magnanimous like I did, (laughs) it's generous. Could we get the definition? Did I? Okay. Generous or forgiving, especially toward a rival or less powerful person. How is that for wisdom? 
from our youth. Can we, can I get an amen? <laughs> they didn't learn that from Gen X, I don't think. <laughs> That's my generation. I'm only speaking on behalf of myself. <laughs> the rest of you, boomers, boomers and millennials, if you need to learn something, you can say amen to that too. Have you ever met a parent? I have a friend. Um, have you ever met a, a parent and their adopted child and they look alike? Okay, I get some nods. I, I've just noticed it all these years since when I was in high school. My, my best friend had a, a sister who was adopted from Guatemala. So she's brown and her family is white. And I tell you what, their faces, she had all the mannerisms. She had all the features. She had all the expressions and personality of her adoptive mother. I mean, you could just tell it was a mother and daughter. It was so amazing because one's white and one's brown and they're built differently, but they just, they look the same. She'd taken on the features of her mother. When we become followers of Jesus, we take on the nature of humility. We take on the features of Jesus, who is humble and lowly in, in spirit. Philippians 2, 7, 8 through 8 says, He made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. He humbled himself. How do we take on the nature of humility? I'm going to suggest two ways that we can grow in humility. James 4.10 says, um, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. So there are a lot of things in our lives that we ask the Lord to do in us. Beware of asking the Lord for humility or patience. <laughs> that can be painful. We can actually humble ourselves. <laughs> I'm not saying you shouldn't do that. I'm just saying, just be prepared. <laughs> but we actually humble ourselves. Another way that we can be humbled is by allowing circumstances to humble us. Th that just happens, right? In our Emotionally Healthy Spirituality course this last week, um, we've been looking at times in our journeys when we hit something, it's called the wall. And the wall often happens when we experience a crisis or something problematic that turns our world upside down. And when that happens, we can, we can go into this season and this wandering time of questioning ourselves, questioning God, questioning the church. And we wrestle with the idea that our faith doesn't seem to be working anymore. Does that happen to anybody here? It, it does happen sometimes. And we have more questions than answers. We don't know where God is. What is God doing? Where is he going? How long am I going to be stuck in this place of big question marks everywhere? When is this crisis? When is this problem, this challenge I'm experiencing going to be over? And when we go through these crisis times, um, there's an opportunity for us. There is an opportunity to emerge purified, transformed, strengthened with greater resolve, or we can get stuck and we can start doing loops in a wilderness for a long time. Or we can journey through that challenge. We can journey through that refining and that purifying and become different people. And this is what I love. There's opportunity to get through and become. These are four different characteristics of people who journey through the wall. There's a greater level of brokenness. It's like a self-awareness. And when we realize that we're broken and we need a savior, we need Jesus, we're lost. We need, but Jesus, right? And then when that happens, we're freed from judging others. Hallelujah. Do we not need that? That's called humility. Another thing is there's a greater appreciation for holy unknowing, mystery. You are God and I am me. And you love me and I'm confident of it, but I am me and you are God. 
There's a deeper ability to wait on God, be patient. And there's a greater detachment from the world. Oh man, Lord, I need that. Less fear, less intimidation, less being influenced by media or news or pop culture or whatever it is. Less obsession, whatever it is, the vanities, the ecclesiastes, the things of this world. And you gain an eternal perspective, a bird's eye view, a kingdom view. If we're going to be effective at reaching lost sheep, finding lost coins, embracing prodigals, we're going to have to release control. I hate that. I'm not good at it. Honestly, I'm not. And humbly embrace brokenness and mystery. Can we do it, you all? Can we do it? So here's a story about King David going after the one from 2 Samuel 9. David has been king for a while. He's established Jerusalem as a place of worship. In chapter 7, he goes to God and he says, hey, God, you've just done so much for me. we've, We've got Jerusalem. We're here. I've got a nice house. It's got nice cedar walls. Anybody ever want that in their house? <laughs> That's what David's excited about. Jesus, like, or God, I got cedar walls and you live in a tent. You live in a box in a tent. God, this just can't be. Can I build you a temple? And God's like, well, thank you so much, but no, don't build me a temple. He's like, I want to build you. I want to build you, David. I'm like, oh, isn't that incredible? Like the first thing often that happens when we encounter God is like, God, you're amazing. Look what you've done in my life. What can I do for you? And there is lots we can do for him. That's worship, right? But he's like, don't, don't get this mixed up because I'm going to keep building you. I'm going to be working in your life. And so David's like, okay, cool. Work in my life. And then where does he go next? In second Samuel nine, he says, what can I do for others? He doesn't say it quite like that. This is my interpretation. (laughs) It's like, what can I do for others? And just so you know, in the kingdom and following Jesus, that's what happens. It's like, God, what does God want to do in me? And what, how do I relate to God? But then what can I do for others? It's always together. The first and greatest commandment, love God, love others, right? And so David's like, okay, who can I be kind to? Who can I show kindness to? And who does he remember? He remembers his best friend, Jonathan. Jonathan had died in a battle. They were dear friends and it was a messy battle. And the reason Jonathan died is because his father, who was king before before David, his father, King Saul, was a was really broken, messed up man. And he... Um, He died in battle too. They both died in battle because they were fighting with David and they were fighting with Philistines and they were just fighting all the time. And so they died in a battle with the Philistines. So King Saul, who hated David, who was always trying to kill David and King Saul's son, Jonathan, who was David's best friend, they die in this battle with the Philistines. And it's sad and it's hard. David's like, I remember my enemy, Saul. I remember my best friend, David. What can I do to show kindness to them? Now that's transformation, right? If your enemy was gone, you might be happy. He's like, how can I show kindness to them? So he gets all his friends or he gets all his counselors and he's like, hey, is there anyone in the house of Saul that I can show kindness to for the sake of my friend, Jonathan? Go find him, go find Saul's household. So um, they find this servant named Ziba, who was a servant in Saul's household. He runs out and he finds Jonathan, or he finds this guy named Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is Jonathan's son. Now, here's what you need to know about Mephibosheth. While Jonathan and Saul are busy dying in this battle with the Philistines, (laughs) sorry, maybe that was a funny way to say it, but there you go. While they're dying, Jonathan's son, or yeah, Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is with his governess or his nurse or his nanny, however you want to put it. I'm putting this in today's language. I'm doing a Eugene Peterson. Does that work for you all? 
Because if I read it straight from the Bible, you might zone out. <laughs> so poor Mephibosheth is with his nanny, and there's an accident, and he ends up crippled in both feet. Now, that sounds funny the way I say it, but think about it. He's a victim of war, and now he's an orphan. He's fatherless, grandfatherless, and now the new king in this kind of old barbaric kind of ancient feudal systems would likely want nothing to do with him, right? So we have this orphan guy, Mephibosheth, crippled in both feet. He's now grown up. He's older. It's 30. Uh, well, actually, I don't know how many years later. It's like, I don't know. It's years later. And here he is. And, and, and David says, send for Mephibosheth. So this crippled guy is coming into the king's courts. I imagine it was a slow journey. I imagine it was an intimidating journey to come before David. Even, with, even if Ziba had told him, David wants to show you kindness. I think he's coming into this place like his trust levels are broken. Is he really going to be kind to me? So he comes in and he bows down really low before David. And David says, Mephibosheth. He calls him by name. He treats Mephibosheth with dignity. And Mephibosheth bows down low and he says, your servant. So he talks and he's like, I'm just a servant. And then 2 Samuel 9, 7, let's read the scripture here. David says again to him, don't be afraid. So David validates his fear. He normalizes his fear. It's okay, Jonathan, that you're afraid. I get it. But you don't have to be afraid. And then he says, I'm going to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. He's going to show empathy. He's going to show compassion. And then he says, I'm going to restore to you all the land that belonged to your grandfather, Saul. Amazing. He's going to restore his inheritance. He's going to restore his provision. And then he says, and you're going to always eat at my table. Not only is his provision, not only is inheritance back, but there's even more favor. The king's table represents favor, honor, provision. He's removing shame. You get to sit at the table just like the rest of us. And he establishes respect. Mephibosheth, still disbelieving, says this. He says, who is your servant that you should, should show kindness to a dead dog like me? David just is like, don't worry about it. We're just going to do this even though you don't believe it. And he starts sending Ziba off and all the people in his household to restore everything. 2 Samuel 9, verse 11. I love this verse. Quirky, thank you. From that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were, Mephib were Mephibosheth's servants. And this is my favorite verse. Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Crippled in both feet, lived regularly at the king's table. So uh, my grandma has been in an assisted, uh, she's been in a nursing facility and it's recently moved, but going to visit her was really hard. It was lots of crippled people, lots of people in pain, lots of lonely people. And, and going into those skilled nursing facilities, your heart is just like breaking. It's, it's like the other end of going into primary children's. I remember a couple of times I had to take my kids to primary children's and the sliding doors would open and I would see all those kids. And you, you all know, I'm over, I'm a baller. Like I was just like, ah, all these hurt kids, I can't handle it, you know? And so now I'm on the other end going into skilled nursing and just going, oh, Jesus, it's humbling. It's this vivid reminder that we are frail, that life is short. Walk humbly. 
And there is a place for people who are crippled in both feet at the table, even though it's hard for us and uncomfortable. Remember Jerusalem. It serves as a poetic and prophetic picture of God's worshiping people. How are you crippled? How am I crippled? How are the people around us crippled? Could we get the next slide, please, Corky? Let's insert our names here. And Sarah, who was crippled in both feet, lived with the church, the worshiping people, Jerusalem, and ate regularly at the king's table. Chad, and Chad, who was crippled in both feet, lived with the church and ate regularly at the king's table. And Zoe, who was crippled in both feet, lived with the church and ate regularly at the king's table. And Eric, who was crippled in both feet, <laughs> lived with the church and ate regularly at the king's table. And Henry and Michelle and Kay and Cindy and Emily, So before the Luke 15 parables of the lost ones, we have Luke 14. Jesus is at a dinner hosted by Pharisees, and he teaches about humility. So before the passage about going to get the lost, there's a whole passage about humility. When you're invited to the table, he says, don't look for the seat of honor, but be humble. Verse 12 says, when you put on a luncheon or a banquet, he said, don't invite your friends, brothers, relatives, and rich neighbors, for they will invite you back, and that will be your only reward. It's also, it doesn't mean we shouldn't invite them either, just so you know. <laughs> Instead, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind. And then at the resurrection of the righteous, God will reward you for inviting those who could not repay you. Hearing this, a man sitting at the table with Jesus exclaimed, oh, what a blessing it will be to attend a banquet in the kingdom of God. And Jesus replies with this story. A man prepared a great feast and sent out many invitations. When the banquet was ready, he sent a servant to tell the guests, come, the banquet is ready. But they all began making excuses. One said, I've just bought a field and must inspect it. Another said, I've just bought five pair of oxen, some new cars and tractors, and I want to check them out. <laughs> Please excuse me. And another said, I just got married. We got a honeymoon. I can't come. Verse 21. The servant returned and told his master what they had said. The master was furious and said, go quickly into the streets, the alleys of the town, and invite the poor, the crippled, the blind, and the lame. Go out into the country. Oh, the servant comes back and says, there's still room for more. And the master says, go out into the country lanes and behind the hedges. Now, behind the edges, this is, this is the scary places. This is the places off the beaten path. This is the dangerous places. This is where the robbers and the thieves are. And he's like, go there and find anyone so that the house will be full. For none of those who I first invited will get even the smallest taste of my banquet. The master was furious. Jesus is passionate about us going and inviting people to the table. Jesus is telling us the busy people, the satisfied people, they're not coming. They're not coming. They're not hungry. So they're not going to eat. But I want everyone at my table, the Mephibosheths, the sheep, the coins, the prodigals, the neighbors, the households, all of heaven. So we're going to tell some stories here, finish with some stories about simple invitations random invitations and beautiful poetic invitations to people to come to the table. So we're going to start with Monica. Monica, come on up. Yeah. Yeah, that's good. Cheering for our family. <laughs> Yeah, so my invitation was, it was a simple one. Very, very simple. I, when I first came to Christ, I was so excited. I was going to get baptized. I was on fire. I invited my family, but my niece, 
My niece was married, living on her own, and I, I knew everybody wasn't going to agree with my baptism. But then last minute, I felt led in the spirit that I just needed to send her a text and invite her and the family to my baptism, even though they lived in another town and they were over a mountain. I was like, whatever, they're not going to come. And I was like, I don't even know why. But I, I obeyed anyway, even though I was being prideful and obnoxious about it. I still invited them. They showed up to my baptism, attended my church service, and then within a week, they were texting me, asking me for a local church in their town. And now, about seven years later, um, my nephew-in-law is just absolutely on fire for God. He's like our old Tom Sanger, where he had many hats in the house, like he does everything in his church. My niece is on the worship team. She's actually almost about to be the worship team leader. And both of their girls are just on fire for God. They're obtaining prayer languages, just everything, all from my one little text. There you go. An invitation. Thank you. A simple invitation to a baptism. By the way, if you haven't been baptized and you would like to be, it's a public witness. It's an invitation. It's a declaration that I belong to the Lord and it's a witness before our friends and family that invites them to the table. So that's one example. Our next one is Steve Wonky. Be, prepare yourselves, put on your seatbelts. <laughs> yeah. So what she means is it might come with a PG-13 rating. Yes. This is what's out the door. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's good. So I'm at work one day. And Brenda receives a, a phone call from a young lady claiming to be my girlfriend. And she is convincing Brenda that it's not possible that she is my wife, that she married me. And this girl kind of just kind of puts Brenda through the paces of saying, he is not married. I'm his girlfriend. I was just with him the other night. And so that happened. And Brenda's like, this is weird. So I didn't find this out till I came home from work. Then later that same day, a different girl calls and said, can I talk to Steve? And Brenda said, he's not here right now. He's at work. Well, who are you? Well, I'm his wife. He's not married. I just spent the night with him a couple of nights ago. So I come home from work and, and I walk in the front door and I look over at Brenda in the kitchen and she goes, is there anything that you want to tell me? <laughs> I said, I don't think so. She goes, are you sure that there's nothing that you want to tell me? And so she tells me the whole story. And I said, I don't know who you talked to, but they weren't looking for me. So about 11 o'clock that night, I get a call from this guy who is associated with these two girls. He is a pornographic movie producer and some level of, of drug sales. <laughs> and he's looking for a man by the name of Steve Wonky who owes him money for drugs and the same Steve Wonky participated in some of his pornographic movies, both with female and with male. And they are trying to track this guy down because they want their money. And so this guy <laughs> for about 30 minutes on the phone, first of all, he was very crude and suggestive and most people would have hung up on him. And I just said, Lord, let's just see where this goes. <laughs> if you're a front lines guy, which I'm kind of a front lines guy, it comes with a mess. So just that's the way it is. So, so he's grilling me, asking me, how long have you been married? What are you doing? And eventually we're talking and he says, you're not him. And I said, what are you talking about? He goes, you're not Steve Wonky. And I said, well, I kind of am because that's my name, <laughs> but I'm not the one you're looking for. And he goes, Okay, I can I I get that now. So <laughs> the whole thing about so he he's and and maybe we ended that call and I didn't get much in about a relationship with Jesus at the time. So I mean when you don't know who's going to call you and you get one shot, you have to say you have to try to be somehow sincere, heartfelt and try to say something that might convince him that there's another way to live. <laughs> so we end on a good note. It's a couple of weeks later, 11 o'clock, 12 o'clock at night. He calls me back and says, hey. And I said, hey, how you doing? And he immediately starts in wondering how much money it would take for me to perform some of the things that he boasted about doing in his movies. This is the PG. And I said, dude, you don't have that much money. 
He goes, what about your wife? And so he started to be nasty about Brenda. And I said, he's, he's just lost. And so how much money would it take for you guys to do this? And I said, dude, you don't have that much money. He goes, I really want to know. And I said, there's no amount of money. And so I started to share the Lord, how the Lord freed me from all of those lifestyles that this guy's trapped in. And so he called me again three months later. He called me again six months later. He called me again six months after that. And it's always in the middle of the night, like on a Friday night about midnight. And so I'm sharing the Lord with this guy. And I am said, dude, you can get out of this. Well, he was very boastful, antagonistic at this time. And you can tell that he was attempting to really get me mad. So he was being very crude and very suggestive, saying X-rated things about Brenda, saying them about me. And I finally said, okay, this is going beyond a point. I've, I've labored with him for a while. I think I'm just going to be done now. And I said, I'm going to let you go. But I said, this is what I'm going to do. I said, I'm going to start praying that God ends your business. And man, did he get PO'd at me. He cussed me out slammed down the phone. And I said, I'll never hear from this guy again. A year and a half later, he calls me back and I pick up the phone and said, hello. And he goes, Hey, and I said, by this phone call, you are telling me that you want out. And he said, maybe I am. And you could hear all of this nastiness and his spirit just was down. He was, he was down and there was some big commotion and in, 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 on his end of the phone and he had to go. And so that was it. Um, I never heard from him again. We moved away. And so, you know, God has the ability to get this video in front of him. Amen. Amen. Yeah. Thank you for sharing that. On one hand, we might say, well, what kind of ending to that story is that? Steve is such an example of God's relentless love chasing after us. May we be that extravagant with our love, even if we don't see the fruit or the end, or we don't know what happened to that man. Like we can just pray like right now, Lord, bless that man, bless the people who work for him, bless the people in the highways, in the byways, in the hedges. We love you. Even though you call and harass our spouses, we love you. Amen. Let's be that kind of place. Let's be that kind of people. And I'll just say real quickly, I prayed for a man for 17 years. I'm not going to go into details right now, but he became a believer and I just met him for the first time. And he was a film producer. 17 years of a complete stranger thinking I would, well, I'll never meet a film producer a writer and producer, I'll never meet him. 17 years I prayed for him and I just met him a couple weeks ago and he put his hand on his shoulder and prayed for me. Don't give up on these ones, going after these ones. Okay, Chris Barden. We love Chris Barden. Let's hear for Chris. <laughs> Okay, I'm going to take you on a quick 18-year-long journey with my brother-in-law. Um, we are so blessed to have Jill's sister and her family a part of our life because they we just spent as much time as we could with them. Mike is a cowboy's cowboy, and he's tough, he's hard, but he's gentle and he's kind and Becky asked us to enter into this uh, effort of hers to pray him into a saving knowledge of the Lord. Mark, Mike was raised on a, on a hard ranch. From the time he was eight years old, he lived in a saddle. He learned more about horses just because of the, the way his dad raised him, and he lived on a horse, that he became just one of the best horsemen in the country. Uh, both Becky and Mike, they got married out of college, University of Wyoming, huh? Huh? Yeah. And uh, Mike was still in the rodeo circuit. He was quite a roper, and that was a hard life for a couple of years. 
And they both settled down because they had teaching degrees. And they were phenomenal teachers. Becky wasn't in Oklahoma two years, and she got a Teacher of the Year Award. Um, Mike was a sought-after coach. He could move into a small community that had never seen a state basketball championship and take him there in two years. Yeah. But he was a no-nonsense guy. If you were going to preach to Mike, you weren't going to spend much time with him. And if you wanted to spend a lot of time talking about how God worked in your life, he'd probably get up and go out and work on his horses. We would spend two weeks every year going over to the, wherever they lived. We'd spend a couple of weeks with them. And that meant I got to spend a couple of weeks ranching with Mike, and it was great. And I don't know, we was probably into this prayer vigil for 15 years. And God started giving me a word picture. And it was about this ranching community. And there was one large ranch in the community, and it seemed like his fence line touched every other rancher. But he was a pain in the keister because his gates were always open. I don't remember exactly how the conversation went with Mike. But we talked about how this rancher would give anything he had to anybody if they just come. And spend a little time on his porch. He didn't ask anything. He just wanted to get to know people. Because he loved them and he wanted them to get to know him. Now, when you're dealing with a character like Mike, he's integrous, he's honest, he's hardworking. It wasn't like my conversion from mess to miracle. There was nothing in Mike's life that showed he needed Jesus other than he didn't know he needed Jesus. And uh, to speak to him to that, I just explained that this perfect rancher, and it wasn't a it wasn't a Yellowstone type ranch. It was just a ranch with good bones, good stock, but this incredible leader on that ranch. Everybody just wanted to get to know him and spend time with him. And after they did, they merged their operations. And I don't exactly remember how we finished the conversation. I'm sure Mike went. Oh, <laughs> okay, let's go on. We got cows to move. We got something to do. It wasn't too much longer. Mike was breaking a horse, and he had a, he had a nasty wreck. He wound up in the hospital getting his knee rebuilt. And Becky went in to check on him, and he was different. He told Becky that he woke up and Christ was there to visit with him. How incredible is our God that he would take the time to sit in and just visit with this old beat-up cowboy. Mike he came to know the Lord that day. And that was that was 18 years of praying. We never know what the seeds, how the seeds are going to land if the, the soil's fertile. But uh, for the Holy Spirit and for Jesus just to show up and feed Mike some of that salvation salad as i like to call it that we've been praying into for years and years we just never know when the holy spirit's going to show up and it's it's going to change a life so
that's my story. Yeah, God is like a rancher with open gates, good stock. Don't you love it? Jesus is a good shepherd. Ricardo he has a story about a healing yesterday. Is that true? You want to come up and share it? Okay. <laughs> and this will be our this will be our last story. Just a brief story. Yeah, I'll, I'll try. Right? <laughs> uh, hi, my name is Ricardo. We're pretty new here. Um, the microphone up here. There you go. We're pretty new here. Um, Pastor Sarah knows I talk a lot, so I'll try and keep it short. <laughs> I wanted to share a, I guess, a testimony with you guys. You know, um, I was saved last year in October. You know, same thing actually. I guess apparently my wife prayed for me almost for three years. I would anoint my pillow apparently, and I didn't even know, so it worked. <laughs> she calls it Jesus juice. <laughs> but one thing I've been trying to work on is hearing the Holy Spirit. You know, I see all these amazing things that happens, and I'm like, when am I gonna hear that? So, um, yeah, I'm I'm pretty passionate about deliverance, but I've been wanting to see like all the healings and all this other crazy stuff that the power of the Holy Spirit has. So yesterday morning, I was watching a, um, I was watching videos and then, um, there's going like, it was all about deliverance and then a healing came up and I don't know why, I don't know where I just got this like reminder or pop in my head, like about my mother-in-law and the way my wife explains it is that the Holy Spirit sometimes will give you a message, like however you function, you know, for me, I'm visual, I guess. So she's like, maybe it was the Holy Spirit, you know, let's see, go for it. And um, that vision was like, almost like a pray for your mother-in-law's hands, you know, because she has arthritis in her wrist. She can't really move the wrist or close her hands. So every Friday, oh, no two days ago then because yeah. every Friday we get together and we pray like as a family and do all these um yeah just call on the Holy Spirit Lord you know fill us and was it yesterday no, I'm like I don't know point is <laughs> it was yesterday or the day before but um so we were praying and then I saw my mother-in-law and I was like hey I want to pray for you and being new I kind of started getting in my own head about as it will, I mean, being a new believer and all that, I don't know how they would take it, you know, like, oh, well, this guy's new. What is he going to take it or whatever? Yeah, but I was like, oh, well, I'm going to go for it. And I guess that's the leap of faith, right? So I held her hands. I told her, like, how are your hands feeling to your wrist? And she says, well, I can't rotate my wrist. I can't close my hands well. So I started telling her, I was like, okay, well, I want to pray for that today. So I started praying. I started closing my eyes and then I would peek here and there, you know, like at her and her eyes were closed. I was like, oh, wow. She's like, really? She's taking me serious, I guess. So I was like, okay. So then I started really closing my eyes because I even felt my, my eyebrows like getting like, ah, you know, like Holy Spirit fill us, you know. And I started commanding like all pain out like of her wrists, like Holy Spirit just fill her and it started getting hot. I started sweating and I could start feeling her sway back and forth. And then um, after seeing like people fall, and by the way, I used to think that was fake or exaggeration, but I don't know. I just got this feeling where, oh, she's about to drop and I was, nobody's here. So I just went and as she was going for it, I just like kind of grabbed her and luckily a chair was behind her. So I was like, oh, thank God. Because <laughs> so that happened. And then I was like, okay, I don't know what else to do. But so I kind of wait, waited because she was in her moment after she kind of like, stopped crying and opened her eyes I was like how's your wrist how's the pain and she's like she's in the beginning she said it was at an eight and then after she's like oh wow it feels like it's at a two or a three now the pain I was like oh man I'm on fire right now let's go <laughs> come on I gotta pray for you again so I started uh I was like let's go for a zero start praying holy spirit I know you don't leave anything partially let's go to a zero you know prayed when all that I was even more sweating I even kind of had to move my head to the side because I don't want to drip sweat on her you know <laughs> and uh yeah after 
I don't know. I felt like it was like, a, okay, you're done. So I stopped. I was like, okay, you know, <laughs> how are you feeling? She's like, well, first of all, your hands were like really, really hot, you know. I was like, and she looked up at me and she probably saw the, the sweat dripping, you know. <laughs> okay. And what she said was amazing. She was like, she starts doing this, rotating the wrist. She's like, wow. And she's like, look at my hands. I can close them, you know. So the pain was down oh, to a zero. Praise God. You know? Praise God. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> That's awesome. Welcome, Ricardo. <laughs> so that's just some stories of some humble invitations. Could you hear the humility in all these stories? A simple text message, simple phone call, years and years on a horse, in a saddle, on a ranch, and a new believer saying, I am believing the Lord for the gifts of the Spirit and for the people I love. So we're going to close with two invitations here. I know this has been a little bit longer, but I think the stories are worth it. First of all, maybe you feel crippled. Maybe you say, are saying, I'm a lost sheep. I'm a lost coin. I'm a lost child. So the first invitation is to tell you, welcome to the table. Come join us at the table. Come sit with us. We want to get to know you. We want to see your inheritance, your life. We want to see you sit at the table with us. And the second is, everybody pull out your notebooks. Everybody brings notes, right? Everyone takes notes at church on Sundays so they can meditate on it throughout the week, right? Okay, pull out your phones, <laughs> find your memos, <laughs> wherever you take notes, put it in your calendar, your reminders, whatever app you use. And I just want you to think about three or more, maybe 10 lost people, a lost sheep, someone who's just wandered off is clueless, is hanging on a cliff somewhere, but they're happy because they're a sheep. They don't know. They don't know they need Jesus. They don't know it. The next one is a lost coin, someone who's just in darkness. They've just, they're accidentally lost. They need the Holy Spirit to light a fire. And the third one is just one of those people who's just like, hey, I'm going after everything that is not God. And I'm not apologetic about it. So those belligerent ones who are like, I'm leaving. So let's just take a minute and, and think of some people to put in your note that you can pray for, that you can humbly serve, humbly love, humbly pray for. Lord, help us be a welcoming place, Lord, for the lost ones. Help us be shepherds, going after women, lighting lamps, uh, fathers and mothers, looking for and waiting for the returned ones. Lord, we pray for these lost ones that they would know you, that they could come onto your porch Come into your ranch. Leave their old life behind. Come into healing. Come into salvation. Come into the family of God. In Jesus' name, amen.